Zachary Bartels is a debut suspense novelist. Um, he caught my eye because his proposal had a Stephen James endorsement already our AT&T studio, Zachary Bartels, is with us, the author of Playing Saints. Saints come marching in, the power of faith and the reality of evil, and uh, we've got Zachary Bartels with us today. There are a lot of really good Christian novels out there, they're just not published by Christian companies or advertised as Christian novels. Years of declining sales, Family Christian Stores announced on Friday that it will be permanently closing all 240 of its stores by the end. What's fascinating about the Christian market, though, is that the big five don't dominate outside of Harvard Concert. And the 2015 Carol Award for debut novel is presented to Kate Breslin for such a time as this. Writing Christian fiction, exclusively Christian type fiction, is not where you want to be right now. Okay. This is Clinch, a podcast of fiction and not fiction. Playing Saint, All Souls Day, the sequel to my debut novel, comes out in one month and ten days, and I'm incredibly excited about that. I've been hearing from people that they're rereading the book in anticipation of the sequel dropping on October 30th. I'm seeing that there's an uptick in sales, which is also very cool, but today... I actually want to talk about a different book. It's a book that I first brought up a few weeks ago, uh, and it's a book that I contributed an essay to. It's a, a book about the craft of writing, and it's called Jot That Down. And it was edited by my friend Andy Rogers. Uh, it includes uh, essays by myself, by Tracy Grote, Susie Finkbeiner, several friends of mine, as well as a number of other authors and agents and editors, etc. Uh, you can find a link to buy that book if you go to my website, www.zacharybartles.com books. Uh, and today I want to give you just a little excerpt from my essay, which was about injecting what you know into what you write, or injecting everyday life into what you write. It's a topic that I was once stuck with when I told the organizer of a writing conference that I would, quote, speak on anything because I was cocky and stupid. Uh, and it's one thing that I've, I've never really had any interest in. I've always thought of myself as someone who writes what I want to read rather than writes what I know. I mean, yes, I'm a pastor and there's usually pastors in my uh, writing, but there are no demon-possessed serial killers in my life. Uh, no con men, mob figures, etc., etc. So it was an interesting thing to to try and uh, really analyze my own writing process and see how I write what I know. And I want to just uh, grab a couple little excerpts to kind of share what I discovered, what I put down in the Jot That Down book. And uh, if you're interested in reading more of this and uh, a whole lot of other advice on writing, uh, again, check out Jot That Down. It's uh, put out by Caffeinated Press, and you can pick that up at uh, my website. So I'm going to start in uh, partway through a subheading called Inject What You Know Into What You Write. I used to obsess about this yogurt called Simplay, whose gimmick was that it only contained five ingredients, one of them being natural fruit flavoring. I always got the strawberry, and it tasted so rich, so real, that when they stopped making it, I worried what the withdrawal would do to my psyche. I knew I couldn't go back to those other yogurts with the fake strawberry flavor, which doesn't even taste like actual strawberry. Did you know the primary ingredient in artificial berry comes from a beaver's anal gland? I'm not joking. Look it up. And what about the fake banana flavor used in candy? It's not even close to the taste of a real banana. More like hot plastic, and yet somehow not hot. Very off-putting. 
Likewise, we're all familiar with the tropes used in police procedurals, whether on screen or on the pulp page, and we can identify them immediately, but only the way we can identify grape soda, because we've encountered it before, not because it tastes even remotely like a real grape. There's nothing genuine about it. In order to avoid that, quote, artificial flavor taste in your writing, you've got to inject something real, something natural into your character's plot and setting. And where do you get this natural flavor? From what you know. And I don't just mean what you know about, what you know in the biblical sense, the relational sense, the way you know your good friends. That might be a slam dunk for you. Perhaps your life experience, whether in the Marine Corps, the Peace Corps, or battling cancer, naturally translates to the written page. My friend Carrie Stewart Parks has created a successful series drawing largely on her own experience as a forensic artist for the FBI. My friend Cliff Graham has drawn on his extensive military experience to flesh out best-selling novels about biblical warriors and the battles they fought. Me, I worked in a cubicle and attended seminary for a decade. Since then, I've done a lot of funerals, drank a lot of Red Bull, and smoked a lot of cigars. And I can recite entire episodes of the 80s comedy Family Ties. So, yeah, on the surface, my life does not exactly lend itself to engaging storytelling. So how do I inject what I know into what I want to read? Perhaps a couple of examples. I admit that while I pretended to be humoring my wife every Sunday night for five years, I was actually a pretty big fan of Downton Abbey. Aside, if you don't believe that, you can hear some extensive analysis by myself and one Ted Cluck on, on some of those episodes of the Gut Check podcast. Why? Because it really felt like I was transported to another world, one about which I knew very little. And how did Julian Fellows, who lives in the same modern world that you and I do, so perfectly capture the bygone dynamic of post-Edwardian aristocratic living as experienced by servants, lords, valets, and everyone in between? Because he knows this stuff, not just knows about it, he's clearly immersed in the topic so much that it's become real to him, and that realness bleeds over onto the page and, from there, onto the screen. My dad is the same way with the Civil War. Growing up, many of our family trips involved taking a longer route that would bring us by Civil War battlefields. Dad would get out of the car and look at this open space and know what had happened there. The way he talked about it revealed that he did not see the Walmart in the distance or the empty combos bag floating in the breeze. He saw Chamberlain and his men, or whoever, preparing to charge or defend their position. And that's what Grisham and his ilk do as well, isn't it? I guarantee that guy has never narrowly avoided a car bomb, just as Fellows has never had to surreptitiously move a Turkish diplomat's body through a large estate to protect the honor of a pseudo-heiress. I mean, maybe that one time, but but there's enough natural flavoring drawn from the writers' lives and injected into both stories to sell them convincingly. And this can be done tangentially, too. My former secretary spent years as a legal secretary at a big downtown law firm during the Mad Men era. And believe me, she had stories. If she were so inclined, she could write a book about her experiences, altered only to protect herself from lawsuits, or she could write a sort of tell-all type story about a lawyer in that era, changing up the cases and places, but keeping the candid authenticity. Because she knew better than anyone how they think, talk, and act. What makes them tick? And that leads me to the idea of injecting my internal life into what I write. My life is not just a set of experiences, it's also my response to these experiences. 
You may not think your life is worthy of literary attention, but you do have all sorts of things going on inside of you that are very interesting. They're just waiting to be discovered. Human emotion and instinct and struggle are universal and can be transferred fairly easily. I was doing this without even realizing it, and you probably are too. We're all full of tensions and inner struggles, but few people are really in touch with them anymore. Drawing on such things is a lost art. Today, when we feel some angst inside, most people just pull out their smartphone, also known as their pacifier for grown-ups, and Maggie Simpson that thing by playing some quasi cupcakes or scrolling through their Facebook feed until the feelings die back down. But you have the option of leaving the iPhone in your pocket and feeling the uncomfortableness for a minute, experiencing it, and then writing it down. Because what you've got there is gold. It's the kind of natural ingredient that can make a great story. If you're able to leverage this well enough, you can write compellingly about even the mundane every day as is. Harvey Picard did this for years in his cult classic comic American Splendor. People clamored for his observational insights couched in stories from the not-so-fascinating or fast-paced world of working in a medical records office. And again, you can apply this straight on or laterally. The question becomes, how can I take that tension I was feeling and apply it to a character? Can you transfer this tension to a lawyer or a politician or a stay-at-home parent who wants to be liked by his or her child but also wants to be faithful to the task of raising up a responsible kid? Rather than guess what my characters might feel, I can inject a little of my own tension into them and let them feel it after me. I think one of the best examples of this is Chuck Palahniuk. I once heard an interview in which he told of his experience of grief after his father was murdered. He had this urge as he drove home one night after identifying his father's body to stop his car on the shoulder of the road, leave the headlights on, and just lie there in the beams of light until someone wearing a uniform came along to help him and tell him everything would be okay. He spun this off into a tangent, resulting in the book Choke, about a guy who forces himself to choke on food at restaurants so that a stranger would give him the Heimlich, which is pictured as this sort of life-giving hug. The only way the character could experience real, meaningful human contact and compassion. Now, aside, this book is called Jot That Down, but I thought it was called Jot It Down originally, which is why I called this last section Jot It Down, and here it is. Much of what you can inject into your writing is emotional or sensory flash paper. If you don't write it down in the moment, it may slip through your fingers forever. That's why I carry at least one digital recorder in addition to my phone everywhere I go and even have a pad of waterproof paper in my shower. I jot down every little detail that might stand in for the whole. For example, every surface in the DMV is sticky. I find these details incredibly helpful for filling out settings and especially characters by injecting aspects of places and people I know into what I write. I've even been known to pair up a character with a real-life friend or acquaintance. I promise they'll never be the wiser. Give it a shot. My second book was called The Last Con, and one of my favorite characters was a mob enforcer named Marcus Brinkman. Now, I don't know any mob enforcers, but I know a guy who could be a mob enforcer. And while I was writing, I observed every little thing I could about this guy, how he stood, how he dressed, his verbal tics. When I first started a Facebook author page years ago, one of my old college professors commented, this is exciting for you. Just be sure that you don't use your parishioners' lives for inspiration. And I was like, 
No, I'll just be sure that I don't get caught. Because we have to draw on real people, unless we want our writing to have that hot plastic taste of artificial banana rather than the refreshing flavor of the real thing. Usually this amounts to mining, not full-formed characters, but individual traits, like dressing a set with props from your own living room. After Playing Saint came out, a few friends of mine said, I think I know who you're basing this particular character on, and named a well-known religious figure from Grand Rapids. And maybe they were right. I'm not saying I did, and I'm not saying I didn't. What I am saying is that the little disclaimer your publisher puts on the copyright page, the one that says, any similarity to any real person's living or dead is purely coincidental, is a lie. Any similarity? Any similarity is coincidental? No, it's not. Almost every little quirk, trait, and idiom is drawn from someone we've encountered, and that person is, by process of elimination, either living or dead. And hopefully, if we're coloring what we want to read with what we know and what we've experienced, our writing will strike the reader as a lot more living than dead. If you want to read the whole essay, it includes a lot more of my experience and quite a few more examples and illustrations, along with 18 other excellent essays on the craft of writing and the writing life. Check out Jot That Down. And again, I have a link to where you can buy it at www.zacharybartles.com books. But for now, let's get back to Trenton Marsh in the little town of Clinch Rock. Previously on Clinch, he texted Jason, Hey man, you up for a road trip? The reply came back almost instantly. Where to? Baldwin. If you can get the minivan, I'll show you something awesome. A coin store? Jason demanded. What? Trenton reached into a manila envelope and withdrew the two banknotes, setting them on the counter. Are these worth anything? That's what collectors look for. I wouldn't be surprised if it brought thousands of dollars at a coin and currency show. Even more at auctions. It's playing at the State Theater. Not exactly high art or anything, but sorry Trent, I already have plans. Dan Barton asked me out. Judith hung back, beneath the canopy of a white pine. Actually, it wasn't Judith. It was Angelus, the guardian angel of Clinch Rock. If Fisher came out with somebody else, she'd follow behind on the iron horse stashed nearby. But if he was alone... Clinch, a novel, chapter 13. Quote, I remember singing a song called Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. It was a lovely song, and the climax of it was, The things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. You know what that tells me? If I love Jesus, the things of earth had better be dimming. We love to sing that, but we don't love to think about it. Because that includes good food, friends, wine, and sunsets. These things should be dimming. When Jesus returns, do you want to be looking full in his face or distracted by the things of this world? How humiliating it would be when he returns to be caught listening to secular music, reading a novel, listening to a podcast, or watching television. Let it all dim. Let it fade to black. From Insane Faith, A Guide to Extreme Christianity for the Truly Faithful, page 162. Trent was beyond distracted Friday morning. After trying Zoe two more times with no answer, he'd gone to the Whitetail Diner for breakfast. Only when his food was on the table did it occur to him that he and his dad would have had plenty of time for archery and eggs this morning. Dad had even taken the day off, which was a small miracle in itself. After two cancellations, they'd missed the best opportunity they were likely to get. Soon, Trenton would be off on the YLBC retreat and then back at school and such opportunities would be extinct. 
Combined with last night's date fiasco, this had Trent low-grade fuming all morning, nursing his regrets like a loving mother. At work, Todd had already reprimanded him three times for slowness and sloppiness, and it was only 10.15. For the life of him, Trenton couldn't remember why he'd taken this job, which paid practically nothing, instead of taking driver's ed and at least getting a license, even if he lacked a car. The electronic door chime sounded, bringing a semi-audible groan from Trenton. He looked up and saw the mayor enter the store. Mayor Grobel was a retired school administrator who always wore a suit and tie, he seemed to be laboring under the idea that, even in a town the size of Clinch Rock, where he was paid a stipend of $5,000 per year, the mayor should get free haircuts, the best tables at every restaurant, all five of them, a blind eye from the police when running red lights, and immediate fawning upon entering any establishment. None of this actually happened, of course, and Trent approached him with all the enthusiasm of a dead moth. "'May I help you?' he asked. "'Why, yes, young man, I'm looking for a nice headboard.' Trent sighed. Thanks to pensions or investments or something, Mayor Grobel was one of the richest men in Clinch Rock. Why would he need to shop at Second Life Home Store? We only have a few, Trent said. Follow me. Behind a couple stacks of interior doors, there were exactly three headboards. Mayor Grobel clucked his disappointment, bending over them, inspecting. As he examined the last one, Trent noticed something shiny inside the man's suit coat, hanging open. A gold lapel pin. On the inside, he squinted at it. C.F.B. And the same image tattooed on Sean's arm, if more refined. What's that? Trent demanded, pointing at the pin, knowing he was just making trouble to blow off steam. It was really a Jason move. The mayor looked down, saw the pin, and fastened both buttons of his coat. None of your concern, he said. It stands for Crown Fireboys, though, right? The mayor stood, straightened his coat, and walked right out of the store without another word. Only when he'd left did the full weight of this development register. If the mayor really had been part of this group, how far back did it go? Certainly not all the way to the 1890s, right? And was it just as Sean had described, a few teenagers killing time, or was Judith onto something with her theories of high-level conspiracy? The thought of Judith reminded him of the previous night, dragging him even lower. As if he'd been waiting in the wings for that particular cue, Dan Barton walked into the store wearing a bright orange t-shirt emblazoned with the words, no excuses, no delays, clinch rock wrestling. He gave Trenton the once-over and smirked. Hey, Marsh, I need some speakers. What do you have here? Nothing. Get lost. The jock smiled wide. Oh, I get it. You're pissed at me because you couldn't keep the lady entertained last night. Not my fault. Trenton just glared at him. Dan pushed further. Or are you mad because, deep down, you know I'm at least going to get a base hit tonight? Just shut up. We don't have any speakers. Go to Best Buy. Barton rolled his head around on his enormous neck, drawing a couple loud cracks. Anyway, I like you better with the bag lady. Maybe the four of us could double date sometime. Trent stepped toward him, feeling that familiar anger coursing through him again. I'm warning you. I mean, she'd have to take a flea bath first, but, you know, Trenton shoved him. Easy there, Nancy, Dan said, shoving him back a little harder. So he's not here to rescue you. Trent wanted nothing more than to hit this jerk, to knock his block off, but really didn't know what the protocol was here. He'd never been in a fight in his life, so he pushed Dan again and immediately felt an explosion of pain in his abdomen. 
The punch had come so fast, he couldn't even remember seeing it, nor going down to one knee, yet here he was, trying to catch his breath. The thought formed in his mind without permission. What would Judith do? She wouldn't go down after one punch. Wouldn't stay down, anyway. He forced himself back to his feet, exaggerating his pains for a moment before springing into action, slamming his fist into Barton's jaw with all the strength he could muster. The punch connected, bringing a satisfying thud he felt down to his toes and a sting he hadn't expected in his knuckles and wrist. Dan put a hand to his stubbled jaw and rubbed, a malicious smile growing across his face. Trenton saw it all unfold with near clairvoyance just before it actually did. He felt the blow to his right eye, the freefall, and his spine connecting with the hard floor. Then he heard Todd's voice somehow all around him. That's it! He grabbed Trenton by the shoulder and hauled him bodily to his feet as if he weighed nothing. You're both too old for this crap. Now shake hands! Dan reached out, smiling, that fake toothy grin of his. Trenton pushed past him and made for the door. Yeah, both of you hooligans get out of here, Todd chided. You're lucky I don't call your fathers and report this. As Trent left, his palm pressed up against his screaming eye, he heard Todd call, And don't bother coming back, Trent. You're fired. You okay? Barton asked, out on the sidewalk. Yeah. Well, don't get used to it, because this isn't over. He turned and walked away. Trenton collapsed on a bench a block from the store. His eye ached like fury, and he had no place to be and no idea what to do. On TV, they always pushed a thick steak up against swelling eyes after a fight, but that seemed a bit cartoonish. Besides, the only steaks they had at home were frozen solid in the chest freezer. He felt an urge to call his dad. That's how he'd always kept Barton at bay in the past, but no, that wouldn't work because Trenton had started the fight. And his dad had taken the day off, meaning the only chief of police he would find at the station was Dan Barton's father. And here he'd begun the day thinking he couldn't descend any lower. Intent on fixing something in his life, Trent stood, dramatically, and a bit too quickly, causing his eye to complain. He began the ten-minute walk to Zoe's house, stopping at the gas and sip on the way for some ice. As he approached the Cassell house, he decided to try and leverage this turn of events, to use it to convince Zoe that Dan Barton was the meathead bully after all. There was no way to hide his pathetic appearance, shuffling along, icing an inevitable shiner. He may as well play it up. Zoe answered the door, her phone pressed to her ear, and her body language anything but welcoming. He's here now, she said into the phone. Looks like you really hurt him. She listened for a few seconds. I find that hard to believe, Dan. She shook her head violently. No, you won't be seeing me tonight. This little episode just proves that neither of you is mature enough to date me. Why don't you call me when you've grown up? She ended the call and crossed her arms, giving Trent an apprising look. He's a bully, Trent said, shrugging. He just hit me. Can I come in? A bully, she repeated with disgust. You sound like a little boy. Can't you stand up for yourself? I got a decent shot on his chin. It, I bet it left a mark. Her disgust turned to pity, but not the kind he was hoping for. I thought you said he just punched you, and that was it. Look, the whole thing was stupid. I'm sorry it happened, but I was thinking maybe we could go through the rest of the letters from Jeremiah Walcott this morning? She shook her head. My father and I already did it. Her eyes softened just a bit. Look, Trenton, I'm not saying I don't want to be friends. We're going to spend almost a week together at Picture Falls, but this did not help you. Understand? Trenton tried a nobler tact. He insulted your honor. I was fighting for you. Were you? 
Or were you fighting for Judith? Because that's what Dan said. He shook his head. I'm sorry about last night. That was weird, and it wasn't my fault. Of course not, she said coldly. Nothing ever is. That's not fair, Zoe, he complained, realizing he was just digging himself deeper into the very same pit. She studied him for another moment before saying, You need to decide if you're a little boy, like Dan Barton, or a man. Because I'm not a kid, Trent, and I don't have time for little boys. A man doesn't complain about bullies or pal around with a mentally deranged female wrestler who dresses like she's in some sort of Japanese cartoon. The edge returned to her voice as she said, Why don't you go back to the servants' quarters and think about that? And shut the door in his face. As he wandered away, feeling thoroughly savaged, he dialed up Jason's cell. He needed propping up, and Jason would do it expertly, with a combination of encouragement and mocking of Barton through any number of creative epithets. Hello? Trenton recoiled. It was Mrs. Dufresne, perhaps the last voice he wanted to hear. Is Jason around? he asked. Yes, he's around, but he won't be leaving the house or talking on the phone anytime soon. He's grounded until school starts. Isn't that right? Trenton was unsure if she was asking him for validation or, more likely, talking to Jason himself. Oh, uh, can I just talk to him for a minute? It's kind of important. No, you can't. And maybe you should have thought about that before you took my van to Baldwin when I clearly told him no. Trent's eye was throbbing. What an idiot Jason could be. Uh, I'm sorry, Mrs. Dufresne. Uh, He said he had your permission. Well, he didn't. I almost reported it stolen. Don't bother calling this number again until the 28th. The battery's almost dead, and I won't be plugging it in. Goodbye. The line went dead. Of all the crappy luck, just when he needed to unload, his dad was off getting a day-long dose of insane faith, his girlfriend had shut him out and was probably not even his girlfriend, Jason was grounded, and calling Judith was out of the question. Things were just weird between them, and by all rights, he really should be mad at her for tanking his date last night. Defeated, he walked home and tried to get back into Walcott's diary, continuing backwards from the point where he'd left off, the reverend nearing the end of his quest, cataloging a series of searches in what seemed to Trent like very unlikely possible locations. On the plus side, he found it easier to read the diary with just one eye, but after half an hour, his headache and wandering thoughts convinced him to give up. Slipping back into the secret room, he again studied the map. A sudden Hail Mary idea formed. Perhaps he wasn't out of the game completely. As far as he was concerned, Judith had given up exclusive rights to this secret, and there was a chance Zoe might forgive him if it meant a look inside Jeremiah Walcott's desperate search and a diary that gave her access to his innermost thoughts. Not wanting to overthink it, he called her up. Not surprisingly, the call went to voicemail after one ring. Uh, Hey, Zoe. I know you probably don't want to hear from me right now, but I had to call you. I just discovered the most amazing thing uh, just off my bedroom. Trent paused a moment. He hadn't decided how much to tell her over the phone. Probably better to err on the side of more information, try and really hook her. It's a secret room, no joke, built right into the foundation of the house. Some wild stuff in there, too. Looks like Jeremiah Walcott's diary or something. You'll want to see it. Uh, Give me a call. No sooner had he hung up than he began to feel a crushing guilt. What would Judith say when she found out? How would he justify this? Trying to distract himself, he turned his attention back to the printout of Walcott's map, where he had marked all the break-ins in red. He added the two newest. He shivered involuntarily. It was almost as if someone else had been in this room and seen this map, 
or he was just feeling paranoid, which made sense, considering. As he looked from the actual map down to the printout, it jumped out at him that there were only five buildings remaining that were both still standing and had not been broken into. Whoever the four intruders had been, Trenton now realized that he likely had the rest of their checklist in his possession. A glance at the remaining targets sent a shiver down his spine. It would be stupid to just sit on this information. Stupider still to give it to Judith, but he couldn't tell his dad. Not today, anyway. He grabbed the phone, dialing the station's non-emergency number, which he knew by heart. Clinch Rock Police Department, a pleasant voice answered. Sheila! Hey, it's Trenton. How are you doing? Oh, hi. We're... okay. Kind of crazy around here today. I'm afraid your dad is not... available. Oh, I know. Uh, does Jesse Finn happen to be there? Or Kendra Brooks? I'm afraid Jesse's on patrol, and Kendra works nights now. Who is there, cop-wise? Chief Barton just walked in. You want to talk to him? Trenton waffled. Yeah, sure. Thanks. Whatever his beef with Dan Barton, it wasn't fair to pin it on the guy's dad. This is Chief Barton, he answered, frazzled. Hey, it's Trenton Marsh. How you doing? Honestly, Trent, I've had better days. Uh, what can I do for you? This is going to sound kind of weird, but I've been looking at some old maps of the town, and I've noticed that all the buildings where the break-ins have happened lately were built before 1900. Okay. The chief was not masking his impatience well. Anyway, I've got this old map in front of me, uh, and it looks to me like there's just five possible buildings left where these guys might hit. Uh, the Masonic Hall, the police station, that building on the corner of Grand and Center, the one that's been like ten different restaurants. You know the one? It was a Chinese place until last year. Yeah, I know the one you mean. Right. Trenton cleared his throat. Then there's uh, the Cassell House and uh, our house. Chief Barton was silent. So, anyway, I figured you guys were probably spread so thin, it, it might be helpful to narrow it down, just focus on the likely targets. Really, it's just four possibilities, since I doubt anyone would break into the police station. You came up with this on your own? Barton asked. Yeah. That's great, kid, Chief Barton said, his voice reflecting true gratitude. What was the first one again? Uh, the Masonic Hall. He could hear the chief writing. You got a bit of detective in you. Must have inherited that from your old man. Thanks for the call. This is going to help. Seriously. Happy to do it. See ya. He hung up, feeling somewhat unburdened, but also a little uneasy, having identified his own home as a target for the first time out loud. Obviously, it had been on the map, but it hadn't previously occurred to him that anyone else might want to look inside. He went up to the garage and grabbed a baseball bat, which he wedged between his bed and the wall. Trenton jumped at the sensation of his phone ringing in his pocket. Calm down, Marsh. He fished it out. Dad, the display read. Hey, Dad, he answered. How's the conference? I'm afraid I'm still here at the station. What? Why? You were taking the day off. You promised. Trent, something serious has happened. It involves Judith. I need you to come down to the station right now. Clinch, a podcast of fiction and not fiction, is a Cardiff Giant production. Copyright 2017, Zachary Bartles. Produced in partnership with KD Enterprises. Theme music composed and performed by Bill Colon. Excerpted text from Clinch, a novel. Copyright 2017, Gutcheck Press. Special thanks to WAC Productions, www.wacfilm.com. For more information about me and my books, visit ZacharyBartles.com. 
If you'd like to drop me a note, you can reach me by email at zach at zacharybartles.com. That's Zach with an H, like God intended, or through the U.S. mail at P.O. Box 10003, Lansing, Michigan, 48901. Naturally, I am also on Facebook and Twitter at Author Z Bartles. And if you're a little twisted, you might want to check out the Gut Check Podcast, www.gutcheckpress.com slash podcast. Thanks for listening. Gut 